Listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host Cliff Slotnick. Afternoon, Joe. And our cyber jockey Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. On the phone with us uh, shortly, hopefully, will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and we also have our first guest on the phone. Peter Sirk, who we will be bringing in in just a moment. First, I'd like to uh, let everyone out there know we had a few technical difficulties last week, so Cyber Jockey and the Unsmoke Gang put together Studio B here at the Unsmoke facilities, and uh, we are hopefully going to be very clear live. If not, let us know. Somebody can text in, and one thing we do know for sure is we will have a clear recording as a backup here this week. So today's segments include the Microband Tournament of Champions announcement, IEC What's News. We will have Mr. Peter Sirk, the founder and president of ET&T, and Dr. Richard Shaughnessy from the University of Tulsa. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, and our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. You can contact us at info at iaqtraining.com, and you can always go to the www.iaqtraining.com website to link to past shows. To contact the show, you have to go to the talkshoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com website and follow the directions to get your PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. And, of course, we also appreciate any suggestions and we'll answer questions or take requests if you email us, again, at info at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff Slotnick, my co-host here, for the Microband Tournament of Champions Trivia Quiz Announcement. Joe, as you know, we have three finalists from last year, Mark Brenner, Chad Seams, and David Bailey, each of whom won a round of the trivia challenge by successfully answering three unanswered trivia questions. Our challenge to them and to anyone else who wants to join in the challenge is to compile a complete list of all the trivia questions from all past shows and answer as many of them as they can. The winner will be the person who answers the questions answer the most questions by our deadline of January 26th. We're extending the deadline one week due to the technical difficulties we experienced last week. In case of a tie, the person answering the most questions in the timeliest manner will prevail. 
Remember, for our listeners, if you're a new listener, we have many unanswered trivia questions from past shows, which can be mined, listened to, and the answers reported to us. We have, the trivia question for this week is as follows. Where in the human body is ozone produced, and what function does it contribute to? I'll repeat it. Where in the human body is ozone produced, and what function does it contribute to? Back to you, Joe. That's a good one, Cliff. I I didn't know that one, and uh, it was very interesting to find out. All right. Today we have our first guest today, and I think we've got some intro music for him. Let's see what uh, CJ comes up with. Sirk is the president and uh, founder of ET&T. He founded ET&T Environmental Testing and Technologies in 1986. He's a pioneer in the indoor air quality testing industry, and uh, he has surveyed over 3,000 buildings, been called upon as an expert witness in numerous litigation cases. In addition to running the company, he directs the indoor air quality EMF and training departments. We'll talk a little bit more about EMF and what that acronym stands for later in the segment. He is also a committee member of the IICRC um, S520 committee. Or, or he was instrumental in the development of the S500, I'm sorry, and is also on the S520 committee right now as a part of the revisions. He is also currently a member of the IAQA's Education Committee and chair of the Microbial Investigation Track. Um, And also the director of the CFI, Carpet and Fabric Institute, and an OSHA-authorized health and safety trainer. Last night when Cliff and I were going back and forth over the uh, discussion of today's show, we were wondering how Peter finds time to do any work. But let's check in with him and see with all his volunteer uh, opportunities. But I, I wanted to turn it over to Cliff for just a moment because he had a few specific questions that he had put together for this segment. So, Cliff, if you would. Hey, Pete, good morning. Good okay. morning, Cliff. It's, it's a pleasure being on your show. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Peter, can you do me a favor and please define bowel biology? Certainly. Let's just look at the word by itself. Um, obviously, bowel biology comes from Germany. I'm not so sure if that's obvious, but it is coming from Germany. So the, the terminology actually comes with the German language. So we have the word bow, which means building or habitat or shelter. And then biology basically means the science of living things. So now let's connect the words. So we're talking about the impact buildings have on human health and how can we promote a healthy environmentally and ecologically friendly construction techniques and that is the premises of bowel biology it was basically founded in 1976 by professor dr anton schneider he is a microbiologist and he was working a lot with wood preservatives and at that time uh pentachlorophenols or pcps were frequently used in indoor environments, and he basically discovered the uh, toxicity of pentachlorophenols and noticed the application in indoor environments and got really concerned about it. Um, and one thing led to the other, and he basically came up with some basic principles on how we design, build, maintain, and verify that we have environmentally sound buildings. 
So that's it in a nutshell, what, bio, bio, what the biology principle conveys. Thank you. I've got a question for you. What's the difference between feng shui and biobiology? I noticed that some of the practitioners have expertise in both, and I was looking for commonalities and differences. <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, feng shui is an ancient science or, or art, the ancient art of placement. So it really has to do with where do you place a building, um, where are the openings, how, is, how are the rooms laid out, and so on. But it really doesn't have anything to do with biology, because biology basically is modern science. I think it has uh, gotten a little bit of a wrong uh, picture in the U.S., um, and that may have to do a little bit with um, that with the fact that a lot of environmentally sensitive individuals uh, tend to be students because they get interested in the subject because they have been uh, affected health-wise, and they're going through this training program, and so sometimes the public looks at the individuals and saying, oh, they are all chemically sensitive. They are not. The principle of biology really deals with how to establish healthy buildings, how to evaluate them, and have a parameter for evaluation. That makes biology very unique. It, they have a, developed a standard which covers over 32 different indoor environmental parameters. And um, the, the unique concept with this particular standard is that it's not health-based in terms of a dose-response relationship which has to be proven in the scientific community which is very difficult to achieve as we uh, all have experienced with setting threshold limit values for you know, chemical compounds or other physical parameters. So what biology has done is they've said, let's, let's turn it around and let's start at nature. Where does nature uh, start out? And then what do we find in commonly in civilizatory areas and take it from there and develop a gradient? So let me give you an example, um, which may make that a little bit more clear. For example, if we look at carbon dioxide concentrations, we know that the concentration outside is, depending on where you live, is usually around 320 to 360 parts per million. So that would be, in the biology arena, a normal condition. And deviations from there would be rated in, on a gradient scale. And there are four categories. So category one would be normal, which would be nature. And if we would have a carbon dioxide concentration, let's say of 500 to 700, it would be a slight change from nature, but it's still acceptable. And if we get to a carbon dioxide concentration of 700 to 1,000 ppm, then that is a significant change. And that correlates, for example, with ASHRAE guidelines. And if we would have now a concentration which is higher than 1,000 parts per million, then that is a significant change which needs to be addressed. And that's what you label a severe change here in your paper? I'm looking at your paper from the IAQA conference, Peter. Yes, that is basically the evaluation criteria, and that makes us very unique. It's not just one single number. For example, you know, the, you shouldn't have higher levels than, you know, one parts per million for formaldehyde or some number, but it is a gradient. And so we, we, de we determine what is the normal concentration in nature or in a non-problem building. And from there on, we have three more categories, and we say slight change, significant change, or severe change. 
I'm, I'm looking at another category that interests me, and I'm just curious on what your experience is because I know you do a lot of these types of investigations. Total VOCs, normal is less than 100. I assume these are in parts per parts per million. Oh no, micrograms per cubic meter. Yes. Um, three, 100 to 300 would be slight. 300 to 1,000 significant. Greater than 1,000 severe. What's your experience with total VOCs with respect to, let's say, new housing? Well, obviously, in new housing, the total VOC concentration is higher due to the new materials, the off-gassing from, uh, you know, varnishes, paints, glues, uh, adhesives, and so on. But that usually reduces over a time period of about, you know, three months or so. The levels go back down to, so you have an initial spiking in a new Okay, and then they go back down into the normal generally or more like slight change? Well, that depends on obviously on your, on your building, your building materials, the way the building is constructed, and that's where the other segment of biology comes in, and that is in the design of buildings to choose materials which are environmentally friendly and materials which are promoting um, you know, a low VOC concentration down the line. I see. Very interesting. Very nice. Now, so the basically, you have two aspects to bio biology. One is the um, helping or the design of environmentally friendly buildings that includes the selection of the materials, the selection of the size, the selection of the design, the colors, light, temperature, all of these uh, parameters which will impact uh, the well-being of people inside a building. That's one concept. And the other concept is to look at buildings where people have a problem, where people feel that somehow their health issues are maybe related to the building. And so there is a biology standard which clearly outlines the methods and principles on how to test, which is fairly unique. I mean, I've been uh, conducting IAQ surveys in the United States for the last 20 years, but there is not one comprehensive document which really, in detail, has a standard on how to test for all of these different parameters. And that's what the Biology um, Association has created, has created a document of about 164 pages, which clearly outlines on how to test for formaldehydes, TVOCs, or EMFs, or radon gas, and so on. And, and this is a part of the training programs? Can you elaborate a little bit on how one becomes certified in this field? a biobiologist, which basically is the training program which goes through what are the basic principles of biology and how to select materials and uh, provide consultation in building environmentally friendly buildings. Uh, that is a one-year uh, study course, which is a correspondence course with actually dates where you actually have to, weekend courses where you actually have to be present. And uh, finally, it ends up with the exam. Once you pass that exam, and you can call yourself a biology consultant. Um, after one has completed that section, one can become a biology inspector. For that, one would have to take an additional training course, which deals with the building investigation. That is a 10-day course, uh, uh, not a correspondence course. It's a, a real course, life course. Uh, with 
practical applications. That means going through buildings. That's 10 days, and at the end, there is an uh, exam again. And once you pass that, you become a biology uh, home inspector. And is that course um, taught in Clearwater here at the uh, International Institute? Yes. First of all, the, the headquarters and the main uh, bulk of the biology movement and inspectors is in Europe. There are about 6,000 uh, biologists in Europe. Um, there is an institute now in the United States, which is in Clearwater, and um, they provide training courses in the English language here in the U.S. Unfortunately, um, it, there hasn't been a lot of uh, promotion about it, so there's very, very few people are aware of the biology concept, um, the training, and the certification. Peter. What is this obsession on electromagnetic pollution? When I was on the website and I looked at some of the tools, they have the most amazing-looking gadgets that are utilized for measuring this. Can you tell me uh, what EMF is, how it's measured, and are there any standards or guidelines regarding you know, what is safe for human occupancy? Yes, that, that's quite a... a a bag of questions you're uh, bringing up front here. Well, first of all, let's just talk a little bit about the physics of electromagnetic fields. Um, electromagnetic fields have gotten a lot of attention in Europe. Um, as the wave of mold inspection hit the United States for the last 10 years, so has electromagnetic fields hit Europe for the last 10 years. So there are very few uh, EMF or uh, Okay, let's explain the term. EMF stands for electromagnetic field. Thank you, and Electromagnetic <laughs> fields are physical parameters, which are real. This is not some uh, habuki theater somehow. This is real-life physics. Anytime you have an electrical current running on a conductor, like an electrical line, you are a, a magnetic field is created if a current flow is present. The mere presence of a voltage on the line, that means uh, your electrical circuit is connected, is creating an electrical field. However, very few people in the United States are actually aware of electromagnetic fields or pay a lot of attention to it. And that is totally inversed in Europe. A lot of people pay attention to that. So with that said, that's the reason why you will see a lot of EMF testing devices if you go into a biobiology survey. Now, a lot of people think that EMFs are like one thing, and you take one instrument and you measure it. That is absolutely incorrect. You do need to have very specific instrumentation to measure magnetic fields, alternating current magnetic fields, uh, alternating current electric fields. Um, direct current magnetic fields, direct current electric fields, electrostatic fields, and actually ionizing radiation. So that's where this whole array of instrumentation comes from. And then if you go up into the higher frequencies, we're talking about radio frequency, microwave radiation, you need a totally different set of equipment. Well, uh, let's so go. that, I guess, addresses some of the questions why there are so many different type of instruments out there. Now, the question you also brought up, uh, Cliff, was, now, are there any standard, standards or guidelines? Uh, and you know, is, what, what is safe in terms of electromagnetic fields? First of all, in regards to standards, yes, there are standards on how to measure electromagnetic fields. Um, 
The IEEE, for example, in the U.S. has set standards on how to measure uh, low-frequency and high-frequency electromagnetic fields. Uh, it just hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Um, now, what is safe? That is the big question. Nobody really knows what is safe. About 20 years ago or 15 years ago when I first started, um, there was a lot of concern about EMFs, and then it was kind of like put to bed, and we haven't really heard about it, but just in the last two years, I have seen a real resurrection of the EMF concern. Just to give you an example, um, for the last two years, we've worked with a lot of school districts in uh, California, because California actually has a regulation that if new schools are built, they need to have a certain setback from power lines. Um, to reduce the exposure to the uh, you know, students, to the young children. And if they cannot uh, provide the stipulated setback, then they have to implement an EMF management plan. Peter. Now, coming back to your question, what is safe, we really don't know. Uh, we don't really have a good understanding of what EMFs are causing and, and what is the safe level. So we basically work with the precautionary principle, or the industry works with the precautionary principle, and that is keep us as low as reasonable. And that is also a, a wonderful concept of the biology movement because it really deals with achievability. What can be done realistically in an economic fashion and not just to come up with some guidelines, remediation guidelines, which then can't be implemented. Peter, I had a follow-up question in terms of the electricity. Having been born in Europe and lived in Europe uh, as you did, and then moving to the United States. One of the big differences between the electrical power uh, within European homes and American homes is we have a similar voltage going in, but in the United States we step it down to 110, whereas in Europe they, they leave the 220 or 250 or 230 voltage uh, on a country-by-country -country basis. Does that make any difference in terms of uh, you know, any of these fields inside of houses, or is it the same? Yes and no. Um, first of all, it doesn't make any difference to the magnetic field portion because the magnetic field portion is dependent on the current. It does make a difference, though, in the electric field portion of the electromagnetic fields because the higher the voltage, the higher is the electric field. So yes and no. Um, in general, um, you know, the Europeans have similar EMF problems as we have here in the United States. Okay. Now, let me just give you an example on how this sometimes relates and how we are not aware of EMF. I was called in by a school district in Phoenix, Arizona, because a new school was built, and the parents were really concerned when they went out to the new construction site because the school was really built underneath high-tension power lines. They asked me to come out and evaluate and give them some ideas on what the magnetic field would be uh, if the school is finished and occupied. So we really did, we, we interacted with the utility companies to actually get what would be a maximum load on that line, what would be an average uh, current flow on that line to model what the magnetic field levels would be in the buildings. There were about eight different buildings and they're spread out over the campus. And only about two buildings would be significantly affected by the power line. Now, the school district asked me six months later to come back and remeasure to make sure that our measurements were somewhat in correlation with what we projected. When we went back to the buildings and conducted an EMF survey, 
we actually found that the buildings had higher magnetic fields than what was ever contributable to the power lines. This was flabbergasting. Turns out the high magnetic fields, and they were really high in the school. I mean, uh, we're talking about you know, 10 milligauss, 15 milligauss in some areas. Um, and that was due to internal wiring problems. So if we, wouldn't have, if we wouldn't have done any measurements in that school, nobody would have known that there are high electromagnetic fields in the classrooms of the students in buildings which are far away from the high-tension power lines. So it's an, an invisible threat, and unless somebody really tests for it, one cannot be aware of it. Cliff and I both had a uh, a question about one of the principles, Peter, that a, a building site, and maybe this has changed, but a building site shall be geologically undisturbed. Can you explain that to us and elaborate a little bit upon that? <laughs> that is probably uh, the most controversial concept, um, and it's very difficult to ascertain that. Um, we know from... The Chinese plays a lot of attention to it. That means the placement, of, the placement. where do you put your building? Uh, we know that in the, in the ancient uh, times, people paid a lot of attention to it. For example, churches were built on special sites. Now, how do you find out that they are free of geological disturbances is, is very, very difficult. There are no scientific means to do that at this point of time. And the biology research has looked into the you know, technical detection of geomagnetic fields with scintillation counters, which look for neutron changes in the neutron radiation, with geomagnometers, which measure deviations in the Earth's magnetic field, and so on. But none of it has really become conclusive so that it can be really used. And in today's biology, uh, we kind of like neglect that point because we don't have any tools. Now, how in the old days was it tested? With a divining rod. Somebody walking around the area and saying this is good or this is bad. And this, we feel this is very subjective and not reproducible and therefore the current biology standard is uh, not to address that because it can't be scientifically proven. Peter, when you do these inspections of buildings and when you do this consulting, and you find things that are wrong, are there remedial methods and procedures which can fix it? For instance, you had mentioned this school that you looked at, and there were these internal wiring problems. Was that corrected? Or can I hope these... it was corrected. Okay. We basically Now, let me just start general. The remediation methods are the remediation methods you and I are aware of. That means this is not some uh, weird stuff where some, you know, cones are placed somewhere and magically the entire <laughs> world changes. No. Uh, you need to assess what is the problem in the building and then to appropriately address it. Let me give you some examples. For example, if you do a biology survey and you find that the formaldehyde concentrations are very high and you determine it's coming from the particle board from the building kitchen cabinetry, what can you do? Well, you can use some sealant, sealer to basically enclose the, the porous surfaces of this particle board material to prevent the outgassing. Now, coming back to the school scenario with the EMF, what does one do? One needs to find the wiring errors 
and fix them. Uh, coming back to the schools in California, when we do EMF management plans, what we do is we look at how does the electricity come into the building, where do we place the step-down transformers, where do we going to place the circuit breakers. We don't want the step-down transformer right next to a classroom where people are sitting. We just move them five or six feet away from occupied buildings, and it's a non-problem. And the solution is there. So, you know, physics, physics approaches are used and not some magic potion. Okay. Well, Peter, the, uh, it's all very in- interesting, uh, and I think new for a lot of our listeners, and I'm glad we, we were able to have you on. One of the other questions that um, Cliff was curious about, uh, what's the cost of these types of services? And I know that's a real general question, but you know, just to have someone like yourself come out and um, walk through a building for, for, let's say, a half a day, I mean, what, what kind of cost can people expect to incur? Maybe rather than a building, how about a home? Yeah, a I... residential facility. Yeah, that would be better yet. Yes, and I think we need to... Bio biology, bio biology concept is really geared towards the sleeping area. That means the concept says that uh, the bedroom is one place where we spend about one-third of our lifetime in one location. So it's a very important area in a home because one-third of our lifetime is spent in that particular area. So we pay a lot of attention to the bedroom. So how much does something like that cost? We try to use as many direct reading instruments as possible. So we here at our company have about instruments for about $100,000 sitting in our lab, which we take out to the site to measure. That keeps the laboratory costs down. But if you need to do some sampling, uh, then obviously additional lab costs apply. But to answer your question very simply, I would say uh, for a regular-sized home and focusing on the bedrooms, you probably talk between $800 and $1,000 for a um, bowel biology survey, which includes about 30 different parameters. Peter, because you're familiar with these principles, what have you done in your own home and in your own sleeping area, and what would it be different than mine? Even though I've never been to your bedroom, you've never been to mine, but what do you think the differences would be between what you've done in yours and what's normally done? I don't think that there are major differences. Um, What what I do in my bedroom, first of all, when I bought the house, is I did a bowel biology survey. That means I looked at the uh, different parameters. We measured the electric fields, the magnetic fields, the high frequencies, the low frequencies, the ionizing radiation, and so on. And it turns out this house was very, very nice. Uh, And so no major remediation needed to be done. Now, what may be different between your bedroom and my bedroom is that I am sleeping on a mattress which doesn't have any springs in there. Now, the question comes up, what, what is the significance of not having any springs in my mattress? Well, when you take out your compass and you will slide it over your mattress, what you will notice is that the compass, which usually shows north, as you slide it over a box spring mattress, that the compass will start moving around. And north is not north anymore. Basically, in a nutshell, there are artificial magnetic fields which are created in a normal mattress and it's changing the earth's magnetic field and that's what we're sleeping on on a changed earth's magnetic field now bowel biology does not say this is making you sick 
or this is a threshold. But what we're saying is this is not a normal natural environment. Now, I was just stipulating that you have a box spring mattress. So. Well, actually, my wife has one of those air ones that we can both adjust. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. I'm looking for a new uh, bed. Uh, Peter, what, what, what would you recommend? Um, maybe a latex mattress. A latex mattress, okay. Mm-hmm. I started out with a futon mattress. What else would be different in my bedroom? Well, I don't know, but I have, for example, installed hardwood floors in my bedroom mm-hmm. because... Um, I feel that wood is a much cleaner surface than a carpet and it's much easier to maintain clean and it's not as sink such as a carpet is. Interesting. Uh, Zach, could you bring Dr. Weil back on? We had to mute him for a moment. Dieter, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Uh, uh, <coughs> Dieter, Dieter? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, Dieter, I'm just curious. Did you have any questions or comments? Well, yeah, I mean, it is an, it's an incredibly uh, interesting field, and there's so little knowledge about it. In fact, I have, you know, my, my own theories, completely unproven. You know, when I grew up in Germany after the war, I, I lived for the, my, uh, five years in a house without electricity in a little village. So obviously, we didn't have any of those problems over there. Then when I came to this country, you know, I bought an electric blanket, which is probably <laughs> something <laughs> I shouldn't use. And, uh, you know, I have friends, when they see a wire uh, on one side of the street, they go to the other side. And I said, there's less of a field over there. The one big problem that I have, or what I would like to know, are there, you know, having done toxicology, is there a dose-response curve that we can look at and say, hey, you know, this is good, this is bad, this is indifferent, like we have dose-response curves uh, for, for alcohol and cigarettes and table salt, yeah. Peter, can you respond to, respond to that? Um, that is for, that's a that is the basic uh, basic difference between uh, the bowel biology concept and the dose response. The bowel biology concept is not based on health and health and risk and dose response. The bowel biology concept is based on what does Mother Nature provide us with and what would we find in a normal home and then use that as a baseline and then extrapolate from there. Okay. And it's a preventative. It's a proactive approach. Well, I can agree with this. I, 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 I don't have a huge problem with this. I, I remember a biology teacher who taught me when I was a little kid that whenever you screw around with Mother Nature, you are asking for trouble. <laughs> it seems to be correct. Uh, right, and that's the different concept which the, the biobiology uses. It says uh, we're not basing it on established scientific studies. We're just using Mother Nature as our guiding principles, and we don't want to deviate too far from it. Very good, Peter. Well, Cliff, come, Peter. comes the next question. That comes, you know, that comes with the next thing. I mean, if you look at the electromagnetic uh, waves which are going to, you know, through my house with 10,000 cell phones, 10,000, 10 million if not more, cell phones all over the place, and radio stations, you know, in the old days we had one or two, today we have 200 radio stations 
not to mention television transmission and 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 it is a, that is certainly a different environment than it was a hundred years ago there's no question about that obviously this is one of the parameters uh, high frequency radiation which really has changed very very significantly uh, on our planet that we're using cell phones cell sites radio TV and so on so yes there is an invisible array of electromagnetic fields uh, filling the ether nowadays. Um, we have to adjust to that. We cannot go back to the times when we didn't have it. The cell phones are going to stay with us. So what we have to do is uh, keep our exposure as low as possible. For example, with the cell phone, um, my point to the cell phone is use it sparingly. We should not let go of the landlines, but we could still use the cell phone, just don't talk so much on the cell phone because there is a significant exposure from cell phones. We know that. We just don't know what the health impact is on the exposure to it. So I personally limit it to, you know, emergency calls, short calls, and that will reduce your exposure. Now, in terms of the base stations, which are transmitting, we just need to have a prudent approach where we place them so that we don't place a cellular base station right next to a kid's bedroom window where there is then a 24-hour exposure 365 days a week which can't be turned off. We can. Distance is the magic for avoiding exposure from EMF. So if we place these antennas a little further away, the exposure will significantly be reduced. Excellent. Now, anything that you would like to add? Any questions you don't think we asked it, Pete? Well, I've, I would say that, first of all, that if somebody is really interested in the concept, in the meth, 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 testing methodology, the evaluation parameters, and the general concept, uh, we on our website have uh, posted the standards and a paper which I wrote, and there's actually also a PowerPoint presentation which I gave at the uh, IAQA annual uh, conference. And that is available and downloadable right up from our website. Uh, the, uh, our website address is www.iaqsurveys, and that's plural, surveys.com. So if you want to learn more about biobiology and want to read up on it, go to our website or contact the Institute of Biobiology itself, uh, which is outlet in Clearwater. The phone number there is 727 461-4371. Well, thank you, Peter. Now, we um, we had, actually, I'm not sure what happened to um, Indoor Environment Connections, but we do have uh, Dr. Shaughnessy trying to get on the other line, so he'll be here in just a moment. And you kind of anticipated our last question. Our audience can contact you by going to that website. And, uh, by the way, I looked it over last night, and it's really uh, a very interesting website with a lot of good information on it. Well, thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you, Peter. And before we go, um, any, uh, any word on how things are going with the S520 Revision Committee? You were a major player on that. and uh, uh, Yeah, that's quite a change of subject here. Yeah, I'll say. You know, hey, what the heck, we'll throw one in. I know. Sure. Um, we're moving forward. We had our meeting in Tampa, Florida, which everyone anticipated with great attention because um, 
In my opinion, uh, the IICRC shot themselves in the foot by not creating enough communication between the committee members. So with a lack of open channels of communication, there was a lot of feeling that something was hidden and there were some agendas played out which um, shouldn't have. And however, getting going to the meeting, it became evident that there was some reason why editing did some changes as they did. And um, so it was a very successful meeting. And we, have, we haven't completed the um, acceptance of all the new chapters. There are a few left. And they're scheduled uh, to be uh, approved in uh, go-to meetings uh, in January and February. And then the document will go back to uh, final uh, editing and should be published sometime soon. So there will not be another review period? Uh, that depends on if substantial changes are made to the document at this point of time from the peer review and public comments. Uh, the comments which were reviewed during the Tampa section did not lead to any significant changes in the document. So therefore, at, as it stands off today, there will be not another uh, peer review. However, if there will be substantial changes with the uh, remaining chapters, then there will be a peer review of that particular chapter. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us, Peter. If you if you could, um, at the end of the show, we usually have a roundtable. Okay. Uh, so we'd love to have you back here at the end. And uh, I will do. All right, great. Thanks for joining us, and, and we would love to have you back again in the future. Hey, Peter, I'm Joe, happy to be there. Peter, Joe, and I both think that you're a great remediator. We admire your many accomplishments <laughs> within the industry. Well, thank you. It's always been a pleasure working with you. All right. Thank you, Peter. Back to you then. Bye-bye. Here we go now. I'm lost in the ozone again. I'm lost in the ozone again. One drink of wine, two drinks of gin, and I'm lost in the ozone again. Good afternoon, Richard. Are you there? Yeah. Okay, All perfect. Right. Okay, I just want to be sure I had you on the line. Okay, our next guest, Richard J. Shaughnessy, uh, Ph.D., received his Ph.D. in chemical engineering from the University of Tulsa, where he currently serves as program manager for indoor air research and is the university spokesman on issues related to IEQ and radon. He's taught and conducted research abroad in locations such as China, South Africa, and Australia, and is recipient of the 1996 National Trainer of the Year Award. He's published extensively on indoor air with respect to his research and studies. Dr. Shaughnessy served as the principal advisor to the EPA on the development of the IAQ Diagnostics Hands-On Assessment of Building Ventilation and Pollutant Transport course, and has been delivering IAQ courses for the EPA since 1991. More recently, he's conducted research on schools indoor air quality issues and how they relate to student performance. This data has been accruing and is extremely interesting and will add a great deal as to practical implications for schools in the future and how schools are operated. Well, welcome, welcome Richard. I'm sorry I didn't realize you were on the line. We had a little uh, communication issue and uh, we'll welcome you to IAQ Radio and thank you for being here. Richard, Richard, what is ozone? Ozone is, uh, well, think of oxygen and uh, O2 and add uh, one more oxygen atom to it. It's, uh, instead of a diatomic molecule, you've got three oxygens, and it is a molecule, but it's, it's fairly unstable, being very reactive. 
and uh, we have it present, um, you know, well, it's present in the upper atmosphere, in the stratosphere, where it actually acts as a shield, uh, to, which absorbs much of the ultraviolet rays from the sun, and uh, which is a good thing. But in the lower atmosphere, ozone acts as a very corrosive, powerful oxidizing agent, and it creates many problems for us um, that we have to deal with on a daily basis. You know, you've studied it and researched it extensively. What about it fascinates you? Well, I think I've studied it more as uh, a function of looking at problems in indoor environments and uh, primarily related to air cleaners. Um, now, ozone occurs. You're going to have formation of ozone uh, related to all sorts of reactions in the lower atmosphere. But in, in homes, we have it any time you have arcing occurring in a home, electrical arcing, uh, laser printers, copiers, um, electronic air cleaners, you're going to form ozone into the air and uh, add that into the environment. And that being, uh, ozone is a very corrosive, highly reactive uh, gas, which uh, affects health. Uh, is very, very much a concern for people with allergies, for people with asthma, uh, even even for healthy people, there's a, a, a strong associated reduction in pulmonary function related to exposure to ozone. And ozone can be very dangerous. There are many uh, byproducts related to uh, indoor chemistry, which occurs in homes and uh, the presence of ozone. You know, Joe and I are both parents, and actually one of my sons is here, my eldest, Zach, in the studio today. Can you please elaborate a little bit on your research of indoor environmental quality and student performance. Well, that's that's a whole other subject, and that's that's uh, that's been a very exciting one that we've engaged in. We've been working in schools, Cliff, as far back as the, the late '80s when we began investigating problems in schools and found indoor air quality-related problems to far outweigh many other uh, hazards that uh, that were being found in schools. And as a function of that. The EPA continued, and they put out what we now know as tools for schools. These are basically a, a self-packaged uh, kit which schools can use to improve their environment at low-cost uh, types of approaches. But uh, what we've been doing is taking it uh, a step further. In our assessments of schools, we've been looking at conditions, and then uh, with the cooperation of several districts here in the Midwest, we've been able to uh, look at student performance specifically tied into indoor environmental quality parameters. And at this point, we've been looking at ventilation. And that, that being with the lack of ventilation, we found um, a, a decrease in performance related to test scores, and which is very important. Although we intuitively believe these types of things to be present in schools, the research has not been there, and uh, we're, we're now accruing, we're obtaining more information, data. We have uh, information from over 100 schools, over 2,500 students, and we're very excited about the results and have only published preliminarily on it at this point. And preliminary now on the ventilation portion of the study, is that accurate? 
That's that's correct. And that being with uh, with decreased ventilation again, it does adversely affect uh, test scores related to students. And we're talking about long-term performance, and and uh, these test scores are related to standardized tests that are administered to students every year. So uh, it, it's it's very important in terms of not only uh, there have been studies related to motor skills or ability, how quickly that a student can perform functions, but this is much more related to their learning ability, and uh, we feel that is very important. As, now, along with that as well, we've uh, been uh, gathering information related to particulate, uh, moisture damage. Uh, we're looking at uh, ventilation systems as a whole, that is the uh, general cleanliness of the system, the classroom uh, type of flooring, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and sources of VOCs, volatile organics in the classroom, uh, in, in conjunction with temperature and humidity. And temperature as well and comfort as a whole plays a role in students being able to function properly and perform uh, to their optimum ability. You know, you know segueing back to ozone, uh, you've studied ozone and extensively, and it's a common tool for fire restoration. And I understood you've done some research, I, I suspect, last year uh, that you were getting ready to publish. What have you found? And, you know, what is the, this document that you're going to publish? What's it going to say? Well, basically, the the idea of ozone being in the indoor environment, there's, there's not a lot of good about it. I mean, uh, as far as anything productive with ozone in the indoor environment, when people are present, that's something you always want to avoid. Now, with respect to restoration, at very high concentrations of ozone, concentrations of which no, uh, no person should ever be present, uh, it has been known to be a strong oxidizing agent, which has neutralized certain odors in the environment. And there are some positives to that. The, the problem is, is that what we have found related to overexposure is there are byproducts that are formed. And when I talk about byproducts, the reactions are forming uh, with ozone with certain compounds in the environment that result in the introduction of aldehydes, uh, ketones, organic acids, things that are even more problematic than what you had to begin with with ozone or the odors that you began with. And those types of byproducts linger in the environment for an extended period of time is what the research shows. Actually, much of this research has been done by Dr. Richard Corsi down at the University of Texas. And uh, the, publish, you know, well, the publication that he's putting forth will, will at least uh, you know, provide more information on these uh, substances that remain in the environment after restoration efforts which may be problematic for the homeowner. You know, you've mentioned that ozone is a strong oxidizer. There are certain materials, chemicals that can be used that are known to be strong antioxidants. Do you think that if we had an environment that ozone reacted and oxidized things, that using an anti-oxidizing technology would be effective as a remediation tool? Not, not really, because... Most of the time at the concentrations, especially when we're talking about restoration types of situations, 
you're, you, you've got such high concentrations of ozone that the reactions and the, the byproducts of what you're forming are, for, for all practical purposes, irreversible. So, and along with that, there's a lot of destruction to, to products in the home, depending on what the homeowner may have. But when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about clothing, anything with synthetics, gaskets, uh, 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 certain building structures, uh, electrical wiring as a whole could be damaged by ozone. And you really can't restore it after this damage has occurred. Richard, this is Joe. Can you stick around for another 10 minutes or so? I know we're over. Uh, we had asked you to come in earlier. You bet. I really, I really appreciate that. And I'd like to get back a little bit to your uh, study in classrooms and the ventilation rates portion to start with. What To give our listeners a, a little better idea, what levels of ventilation did you use with respect to, you know, what were the low ends and what were the high ends? Well... That's a good question, Joe. First, first of all, I mean, the point being, we can't and we have not manipulated conditions in the classrooms. We're simply looking at existing conditions in the classrooms. As you might imagine, here in the U.S., if you go in to a school and you begin to, to change parameters and improve conditions in one classroom and not in another, you're going to face a lot of, uh, to say the least, opposition uh, in terms of using the children as guinea pigs. And, and that's the last thing we want to come across here. So what, what we've done is simply gone into schools and looked at existing conditions that are present. And as a function of that, we've tied that in uh, and looked at their test scores uh, as a composite related to the environments. Um, so we, uh, the types of what we're finding in terms of ventilation rates well, let me just put it this way. Typically, uh, uh, recommended ventilation rates as a minimum in classrooms is between 12, 13 to 15 cubic feet per minute of outdoor air uh, per person should be delivered. And what we found in our studies that right now the mean that's being delivered in the schools is approximately 7.5 cubic feet per minute per person, which is uh, almost half of, of uh, what is recommended. And so obviously that's not, a, that's not an ideal situation. Um, but we have found along with that, we found quite a distribution from very low, as, as low as one to two cubic feet per minute per person in a very tight classroom with no outdoor air, up to 20 to 30 cubic feet per minute per person. And, and the point being, of course, that when a school is underventilating, it's going to affect the students. It's going clearly, from our research, we're finding it's going to affect student performance. But along with that, a student does not want to overventilate related to uh, energy penalties and implications of that. Schools are challenged enough related to dollars and being able to keep up. So this is something uh, that if we can provide the schools the the incentive for number one to at least meet a minimum ventilation standard and why they should do that in terms of improved student performance, uh, we'll be, we feel like we'll be achieving quite a bit uh, in terms of convincing schools as a whole to improve indoor air. Now, when you 
talk about cubic feet per minute uh, per person. Did you also take into consideration the square footage of the room, or did you leave that variable out at this point? Well, it, it basically boils down to an air, air exchange for the classroom. And as a function of that air exchange, it obviously is tied into the number of students. Well, I mean, the volume of the classroom itself. But then knowing the normal occupancy, you can then relate that directly to the ventilation rate per person. Okay. And we've, we've looked at it that way. So you took both, both of those variables into consideration. The other question I had was that I, I'm looking at uh, your paper from the IAQA conference, and you're going to go on to, and you're already gathering information about moisture conditions, water damage, microbiological pollutants, airborne, a lot of different parameters. How do you plan to try and separate those out and determine which ones are being, you know, which are, which are causing more of an effect than others? Is that, is that possible? Well, it's even, yeah, I mean, it sounds bad, doesn't it, Joe? Uh, but it's even worse than that. Uh, you add into that all of the different confounding factors related to student population as a whole. And here we're talking about the socio-demographics of the classroom in terms of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, whether or not they're – well, what we've been looking at is whether or not the students are on a free lunch program, the percent gifted and talented in the classroom, we're looking at attendance records. We're looking at those uh, students, uh, the population related to limited English, which is a problem in many schools here. And we've had to sort all of these things out. So as you can imagine, the greater the population of schools that we put into the study, the greater the power of the uh, significance of the results. And uh, we started out with 50, 50 schools and looking a little over 1,200 students. Um, we found an association at that point between ventilation and improved uh, student performance. Now we've been able to go into an additional 51 schools, and we're planning on adding or uh, putting all that uh, data together from, from both sets now. We, but already from the preliminary inspection of the data, we've seen that there is a similar trend and that we are seeing some degree of association between improved ventilation and improved test scores. So, so but the, as, as you might imagine and as what you've mentioned, all of the different confounders that you have have to be sorted out, and I've had the very good fortune to be able to work with some of the best people in this country and internationally as well to help on this part of it. We've, we're working with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Demetrius Moshandreas from uh, Illinois Institute of Technology. Uh, we're working with uh, Dr. Aino Nevalainen from uh, National Institute of Public Health in Finland and uh, Dr. Uh, Haverinen uh, Shaughnessy, which happens to be my wife, who's one of the best statisticians and data analysts that I've ever come across. So uh, those are the ones I rely on to go and sort these things out and be able to come back with uh, the degree of significance of the data and what it means as a whole. That should be some interesting data when it comes in. We're, we'll look forward, if we can, to having you back as time goes on. Is that possible? 
sure, I'd be happy to. It, it, it's an exciting it's an exciting subject for us. We're we're definitely looking forward to working through the new data. We're actually funded by uh, uh, partially by the Indoor Air Quality Association, and we're very happy uh, for that funding as well. The Train Corporation and uh, um, uh, the uh, uh, National Energy Management Institute is uh, funding part of this. So. So uh, it, whereas uh, it's been a challenge, it's, it's one that initially is uh, showing positive results. And, and as, as I mentioned, we're very excited about the work. So I'd be happy to come back and discuss it again. We would really appreciate that. We also like to ask if you have any tips for consumers out there, Richard. Well, as far as air cleaners, <laughs> I've got plenty of tips, but I don't think we're going to be able to go through them all. Uh, all I can say is that uh, uh, on the subject of ozone, uh, there are air cleaners that produce ozone intentionally for occupied spaces, and by all means, consumers should avoid those. I know of no positive outcome related to those types of air cleaners in the environment. Then there are air cleaners that unintentionally produce ozone as a byproduct. And that those are types of electronic air cleaners that have uh, occasional arcing. Ionizers uh, uh, often produce ozone at low concentrations. And those as well have to be looked at very carefully in terms of how much ozone they're producing. And at this point, related to the indoor chemistry, we have to be very, very concerned about even at low concentrations, reactions of uh, ozone with typical types of products we have in our homes to form uh, these aldehydes and ultrafine particles into the space that can uh, cause adverse uh, uh, effects on health. So I, I would say simply with respect to air cleaners, uh, when a consumer is going out and looking for some, something, look for something that is tried and true Look for something that has a high uh, effective uh, performance, and that would be clean air delivery rate. They should look to something related to that, and specifically what the air cleaner is sized for. Every air cleaner should be sized for a specific room. When you see an air cleaner that's a, a small little tabletop air cleaner, and they say they're going to, uh, it's good for up to 600 square feet, you should be very wary. And, and uh, one last thing, Joe, and very important, just because it's in black and white and the consumer is reading it, they should not always believe that to be true. And uh, unfortunately, there's very little oversight on the ad and uh, claims that are out there with respect to air cleaners. Some are very positive, very good air cleaners on the market that can impact and reduce uh, particles and gases within the space. But others are out there with a lot of hype, a lot of advertising, and selling products that are substandard. So, again, I would I would say uh, buyer beware and be very cautious and do do some background research on the air cleaner if you're uh, investing in one. Where where do they do that research though, Richard? I, I think people might be a little confused on that. Well, probably the easiest thing is when I say use a tried-and-true air cleaner, the majority of the air cleaner manufacturers in the United States subscribe to uh, an association. It's a voluntary uh, type of uh, 
thing, but it, it, it's related to the Association, Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers, AHAM. And that means that when that air cleaner is sold on the side of the box, it has a small little label that says uh, AHAM, and it has a clean air delivery rates, and it tells you what size room this product should be used in. I would, as a minimum, uh, ask, the, ask the consumer to at least look into what is the clean air delivery rate and what is the recommended size room that this product should be used in. And by that, that means that when that size room is given, it should be able to afford at least an 80% reduction at steady state of the concentration of the specific pollutant that you're looking for uh, in the space. And primarily, it's looking at particulates. So it should be at, at a minimum be, be able to reduce particles by at least 80% from what typical conditions are within a home. Richard, if you were a consumer who had suffered a fire or some sort of damage in their home and a remediator proposed to you that they wanted to bring ozone equipment into your home, and they would ask you to evacuate, of course, but, I mean, if this was your home and you had a fire loss, knowing what you know, doing what you do, would you allow them to use ozone in your home as a remediation tool? Probably not, Cliff, unless you were the one coming in doing the work. <laughs> I don't know that I would be doing it. But I, I appreciate your faith, but uh, I don't know that I would be bringing one in either. But thank you very I would, much. I, yeah, I'd be careful. <laughs> How can our listeners contact you, Richard, for further information? Well, they can contact me through the University of Tulsa Indoor Air Program. Um, um, it, it, primarily, probably email is best. Uh, it's uh, richard-shaughnessy at utulsa.edu. Very good. Well, Thank Richard, it, we're, we're going to try for just a moment. Do you still have another minute or two to hang sure, in there with us? Fine. Let's see yeah, if we can Peter bring Peter and Dietrich back in. Uh, Dietrich, are you there? I'm here. Dieter is still here. Great. And let's try and see yep. if uh, Peter has gotten back in. It doesn't look like Peter got back in. But uh, Dieter is back in, and we have Richard Shaughnessy on the line still here, and Cliff and I. And Dieter, did you have any comments or questions you'd like to bring up? Well, yeah. Uh, Ozone, you know, is in the same class as phosgene gas and nitrogen dioxide, and it does act on the human, or for that matter, on any lung, exactly in the same way. It chews it up. It's as simple as that. And you got to be very careful with it. And we, we heard the horror stories of people who didn't know about it, thought it was good. I went into a store where they had five of those sitting there, and I smelled the ozone. And I told the salesman, uh, you know, I said, I, <laughs> you generate a heck of a lot of ozone over here. And I said, sir, don't you know it's good for you? You know, he was also the salesman of that well-known uh, product that is well-advertised around. So you got to be careful with that, yes? On the ventilation issues, I'm one, I, I, I have no data whatsoever. I am 100% in agreement with, yeah, uh, I, I expect better performance anywhere without any scientific data in a well-ventilated place when compared to one that is not very well-ventilated. And it sounds like the the data that's coming in is uh, showing that to be 
accurate at this point, at least, uh, Richard. It's not. It, it doesn't seem like from your paper it's real overwhelming, but there is a correlation. Right. Yeah. And, and and this is important. I mean, you know, again, what what we're talking about, we intuitively believe to be true. We see it in office uh, productivity, but uh, schools actually they're they're much more challenged financially. They need this information. But they need the incentive as well. Right now, as I, as I told you, the ventilation rates in terms of meeting the minimum standard are well below that, and uh, and that's not that's not atypical. That's pretty much the way it is across the across the U.S. and in other countries as well. And unless we provide the 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 case to why they should meet these uh, minimum ventilation standards. It's going to continue in that fashion. So we've got to we've got to make you know some strides toward providing information that is useful, but also is reliable and convincing for for uh, school administrators to make these decisions and uh, improve conditions. Well, I think with that, that's uh, unless Dieter had anything you'd like to add. No, I'm 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 fine. I uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad that. There's some money available that we can, you know, study something and find scientific data rather than intuitive data, and uh, that is always welcome. And, you know, that's certainly uh, encourage, uh, I, I encourage to, to, to do this type of uh, work. And we spend a hell of a lot of time inside our, uh, our homes and schools and buildings. Uh, we may as well... Uh, uh, do them right, and and it's not it's not all super expensive. That's the good part about it. I, I agree yeah. with you, Richard. Yeah. There's a there's a big payback here, and the payback is uh, the students can perform better, and and that's our future, of course. And we often forget, you know, I of all the environments, I I don't know about about you all, but I've I've of all the environments I've been in as a whole as a composite, schools are absolutely in the worst condition of all as a, as a set and uh, and we need to pay more attention to this environment and improve conditions and provide some sort of uh, motivation for that to occur if um, Glenn Fellman had not gotten a flat tire on his way back to the office he would have uh, told us here on the IE news segment that uh, in this month's edition of Indoor Environment Connections, one of the headlines is some recent information that's come out on uh, school performance and issues with respect to uh, indoor environmental quality in schools and, and the conditions in general, just as Richard referred to here, and that the conditions are really bad and, and getting worse and that uh, it's a, a big challenge for our country. What I would like to do at this point is thank both um, Richard Shaughnessy, Dr. Shaughnessy, and Peter Seert for joining us. I'd also like to thank uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director, and uh, my co-host here, Cliff Zlotnick, and uh, Cyber Jockey. Gentlemen, I hope we will all be back together again soon, and uh, keep up the great work out there, Richard. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for joining us. This has been another... Dieter? We are, we are back next uh, Friday, right? We're back next absolutely. Friday, absolutely, at noon. We've got Studio B 
booked. That's right. <laughs> you can even All come. Right. In, yeah, you can come to Studio B if you'd like. It's right down the road from your home here, Dieter. Really? Uh, yeah, we're not too far up the road, I guess. McKee's Rocks, so or Coriopolis. That's right, Coriopolis. You want to come in right. live, please do. Yeah, we'd love to have you here. So this is Joe Hughes and my co-host Cliff Slotnick, our technical director Dietrich Wow, and cyber jockey Zach Slotnick. But I'd also like to thank our growing group of loyal listeners, the most important people out there. This show will be recorded and should be excellent due to the new setup we have here. So you can download it for future listening on your computer or your music player of whatever type, MP3s, iPods. I don't even know what. Now we, now you can get it on the Apple phone, I guess. And uh, if you would, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. I'm allergic to your cat Make him go away So I can stay I can't tell you where he's at My eyes are swollen shut This has been another IAQ Radio production.